You're listening to Episode 6 of the Child Life On Call podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries. The list goes on. And then you still may not have all of the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting and finally about 4.45 on a Friday afternoon rolls around and I can't wait anymore. I thought I can't go through another weekend. So I call and I track down the psychiatrist. I mean, at this point, he must think that there's something really off with me because I even had him paged and they track him down and, and, and you know how it is, you know, you're a mom and you just, you want answers, right? So I'm desperate. Yeah. And so he um, pulls it up on the computer and he says the words, he said, Yes, it was an abnormal EEG. It says here the diagnosis um, is definitely a neurological disorder, most likely Rolandic epilepsy. And I just sit there. And I have no idea what that means or what he's really just said to me. But the word abnormal stuck out. And then disorder. Those are the two words that stuck with me. And I just sat there. I felt like I had been punched in the gut. Hi, and welcome. Thank you so much for listening to episode six of this podcast. I am so glad that you are here, and we'll hear more from that mama, Trisha, in just a few moments. If you are a fan of this podcast and are enjoying it so far, I hope you're following along with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'd also really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes so we can make it easier for other parents and listeners to find us. Make sure you stay tuned at the end of our conversation today for a quick preview of next week's episode. Today, we will be hearing from Trisha, a mama who lives in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. Trisha brings a unique perspective and understanding of child development in her experience based on the fact that she has a master's in early childhood development and education, is currently an adjunct faculty member at DePaul University, and is also a doula. Trisha, her husband, who is a Chicago police officer, have been married for 15 years and have six living children, and they live in a self-proclaimed, cozy, yet sometimes chaotic home that is full of love. Today, we'll hear Trisha talk about the fight of a lifetime to find a diagnosis for her daughter, Cora, who is now 13 years old. First of all, Cora is amazing. She's a really, really great kid who is full of um, a lot of empathy and a lot of excitement for life. And... She um, has always been what I always described as an old soul. So when she first came out, she had these big, wide eyes, and she just seemed like she couldn't get enough of the world. She, or That's how I described it at first. She never wanted to close her eyes. She never wanted to miss anything. She never wanted to sleep. 
um, or so I thought. Trisha first walks us through what life was like with Cora from the moment she was born and the first clues that something may be going on. When Cora was first born, um, we had a pretty normal pregnancy. We had a, a normal birth. She was born one day before her due date. Labor went great, um, as, as far as I thought. Um, when she first came out, like I said, I mean, from the minute she came out, she did not want to sleep. And I'm not even exaggerating that she was awake for about 12 to 14 hours on that first day of life straight before she even went to sleep, which um, I have an advanced degree in early childhood development. So that right away I found a little odd and strange because I knew that that wasn't typically uh, newborn behavior. But I didn't think too much of it. You know, I just thought, well, wow, she's excited to be here. She doesn't want to miss anything. Um, and then, um, also not an exaggeration, she rolled over on her first day of life, so she was on her belly, and, um, because I was just kind of messing around with her, you know, I was checking out her fingers and her toes, and I was checking out all the nooks and crannies and everything, and, um, I put her on her belly for a second to see, you know, what, what she would do, just for a brief second, and she started to arch her back, and she rolled herself right over on her first day of life, and I know that sounds unbelievable, but, she did. And I just looked at my husband. I looked at my husband and he looked at me and he said, are they supposed to do that? And I said, no, no, they're not supposed to do that. So at the time, I just thought it was pretty incredible. It didn't really dawn on me that that might be a sign that there was something going on with her that was atypical or, um, you know, that should be concerning. So fast forward to her first couple of months of life and she, um, Cora, just, she really seemed uncomfortable. You know, she was constantly crying. Um, we had a couple of hours a day where she wasn't really upset and wasn't crying. But in general, she was very, um, almost like she was uncomfortable in her own skin is the way I would describe it. She would only sleep for about 20 minutes at a time, maybe 20 to 22 minutes at a time. And it was like clockwork. As soon as we'd get to that point in her sleep, she would arch her back and screech and howl and wake up. So, And that was around the clock. So she never slept more than 20 minutes. Um, I started going to the doctors, asking them questions about it. And, of course, at first they always said, well, she's just a colicky baby. Maybe she's gassy. Maybe she doesn't like your breast milk. You know, maybe you should cut some things out of your diet. I got all sorts of ideas. Um, they thought maybe it could be reflux. Um, but none of those things really checked out and really explained what was going on. Um, I mean, I guess the colic was the only one that I couldn't rule out because what really is colic? No one really knows, right? So um, I guess we just stuck with that. Okay, I guess she has colic. But as the months went by, her sleep did not improve. My husband spent every evening walking across our apartment back and forth, back and forth with her just crying. Cora's crying on his shoulder, arching her back, so uncomfortable. Um, and as each day and month went by, of course, my confidence as a mom just went down. Um, I was convinced that, you know, my milk was no good for her. I didn't know what I was doing, um, that I didn't, I wasn't a good mother, that, you know, a good mother would know how to make her baby feel better. It was very frustrating. Um, every doctor I went to would tell me that I was, and this is a quote, a finicky first-time mom. I must have heard that, gosh, I don't even know how many times, from not even just one doctor. Several doctors would say something either exactly like that or similar. Um, they uh, really had me convinced that I was just an anxiety-filled, panicked mess and that if I would just calm down, my baby would be fine. Um, 
But then I became pregnant with our second child at five months postpartum. It was a big shock, but we were really excited. And um, I went through that pregnancy again, normal pregnancy, normal birth. And that baby came out and she was a quintessential, typically developing baby. You know, she slept like you always read about newborns sleeping like all the time, right? All she wanted to do was sleep and eat, sleep and eat. Um, She hit all of her milestones right around the time that you would expect. I mean, everything was so typical. So it made that contrast so much bolder in my mind to see my first child who was really still struggling and then to see my second born be so typically developing that I really had this basis of comparison now. Trisha continues her search for a doctor who would help her and her daughter. She sought out medical doctors, natural doctors, chiropractors, with the hope that someone would help her identify what was going on. Trisha literally did everything she could think of to find answers. She even stopped nursing and started giving formula in the hopes that maybe if her breast milk wasn't being digested well enough, an alternative would help. But it didn't. It just made her more uncomfortable. Got all of these mixed, you know, answers and no answers, and it was so frustrating. And then she started having um, very high fevers, like 104, 105, as high as 106 every once in a while. And she was having these fevers several times a week. Um, I mean, really, several times a week for months. And I would take her to the doctor, and they'd tell me not to worry, to alternate Tylenol and, and Motrin. Then I'd take her to the ER when it would get really high. Same thing. They would just give us meds. And sometimes they would do some testing, usually not. Um, so finally, fast forward to Cora being four and a half years old. So we've been going through this now for four and a half years. And in this time, I even had a third baby, a very, um, again, normal pregnancy, normal birth, typically developing child. So now I have my third child and I have a four and a half year old. I have about a three year old and then about a one year old. Um, and we're just at our wits end. Like we didn't even know what to do at this point. And Cora had one of her very, very high fevers. And I took her into the emergency room. And I can only imagine what I looked like. I mean, I hadn't slept, like, literally in four and a half years <laughs> for more than, like, 20 to 40 minutes at a time. I'm sure I looked frazzled at the very least. Um, but I told them, the doctors and the nurses, I was not leaving until they did some sort of testing that could tell me why my daughter didn't sleep, um, would have these sort of almost, I don't want to call them panic attacks because I don't think that's what they were, but these meltdowns where she would be triggered by something and it would just be, you know, two, three, four hour long temper tantrums or what looked like a temper tantrum. Um, Why she um, had these high fevers. You know, I just had no answers to anything. And um, they looked at me like I was insane. And I said, I'm not leaving. You have to do something. So they told me that she had a urinary tract infection, but there was no testing to prove that. They had done a, they had done all the testing that should have showed that, and it didn't show it. I said, I don't believe you. Like, how can you, how can you call it that when there's no bacteria, there's no anything? You keep saying this, you keep giving us antibiotics. It's not getting any better. So um, it was wild. So we stayed overnight that night and in the morning I had this group of residents come in and they're all sitting around and they're all telling me in kind of a different way that it's completely normal for a child to have 
several days a month where they have 105 degree fevers. And I'm just looking at them thinking, I mean, I didn't go to medical school, but I'm not believing you at all. Like, this does not sound right to me. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm desperate to find out what's going on with my daughter. And they said, well, the doctor wants to discharge you. So, um, and his suggestion is that you and your daughter go see a child psychiatrist. Well, your daughter see a child psychiatrist. You see an adult psychiatrist. And I just sat there for a moment and I just stared at them. And I thought, you have to be kidding me. So I took a deep breath and I said, fine, whatever. Give me the referral to whoever you think we should go to. But I also would like an occupational therapy script because my daughter won't let me put socks or shoes on her feet. She won't let us put her near the grass. At this point, swings at the park terrified her so badly that if we drove past the park, she would start screeching and screaming that people on the swings were going to get hurt. So she had phobias. She had sensory issues. I mean, it was really starting to get bigger and bigger. So um, they reluctantly gave me the script for the OT. And then we uh, left the hospital. I went home. I cried. I was so frustrated. And I went ahead and I made that appointment for the child psychiatrist because I didn't know what else to do. Um, I also made the appointment for a local occupational therapist and a physical therapist. And I went to that evaluation first. And not even halfway through the evaluation, we're probably half an hour into it, the two therapists said, has anybody ever tested Cora for a neurological disorder? And I said, no, they haven't really done much, just a few blood tests, a few urine tests. And they said um, that they, they ha- would put money on it, that Cora had a neurological disorder of some type. And um, they really thought that she needed an EEG. But, you know, they couldn't order one because they were not her healthcare provider. So when I went to the psychiatrist about a week later, that was interesting because within about 10 minutes of meeting my four-year-old daughter, the psychiatrist said that he thought my daughter either had oppositional defiance disorder or bipolar disorder. (laughs) So I sat there staring at him. I did that a lot. I would sit and just stare at the doctors because... I couldn't even believe the things that they were telling me. It was just incredulous. So he tells me that he thinks that she might have one of these, like, major psychiatric disorders, my four-year-old. And he thinks that she should be on Abilify because it would help her with the anxiety and it would help her calm down. Um, I knew nothing about that medication. I just knew that nobody was sleeping in my house and that we were desperate to help our daughter. So I took the script and I said, okay, fine. And he said, I think we should also do an EEG just to make sure, you know, before we go down this road of psychiatric care, maybe we should rule out a neurological issue, which makes perfect sense. So I took the EEG order, got that ordered up, you know, got the appointment. So I took her to that appointment. We did the EEG. About halfway through the EEG, um, my daughter woke up and she did the typical thing that she would do. You know, she would arch her back and she would get really upset. And then she fell back asleep. And then when we were finishing up, the tech outside the room came in, looked at me through the glass and then came in and said, has your daughter ever seen a neurologist? And I said, no, why? And then she just had this concerned look on her face and then walks out and shuts the door. So of course now I've got every thought you could imagine running through my head about what does that mean? Did she see something? Is something going on? And I'm trying not to, you know, to panic. Um, So we waited a good week for those results. And it was a Friday afternoon, and I still hadn't heard back from the psychiatrist with the results. 
Um, and that was the only person who could get them for me. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And finally, about 4.45 on a Friday afternoon rolls around. And I can't wait anymore. I thought, I can't go through another weekend. So I call and I track down the psychiatrist. I mean, at this point, he must think that there's something really off with me. Because I even had him paged. And they track him down. And, and, and you know how it is. You know, you're a mom and you just, you want answers, right? So I'm desperate. Yeah. And so he um, pulls it up on the computer and he says the words. He said, yes, it was an abnormal EEG. It says here the diagnosis um, is definitely a neurological disorder, most likely Rolandic epilepsy. And I just sit there. And I have no idea what that means or what he's really just said to me. But the word abnormal stuck out. And then disorder. Those are the two words that stuck with me. And I just sat there. I felt like I had been punched in the gut. That's the only way I can describe it. Like the wind had just been completely knocked out of me. And in fact, just thinking about it and talking about it right now, I get I get tears in my eyes and I start to well up. And it's been now many, many years, you know, since our diagnosis. So I sat there and I was quiet and the doctor was quiet. And then I said, something like, well, now what? And he really didn't have an answer for me. I think he said something probably like, you'll have to find a neurologist. You'll have to give someone a call on Monday and get her into a neurologist or something like that. I don't even know. All I remember is I think I was able to just get out the words, thank you. And then I hung up the phone. And I just sat there and I didn't even know what to do. I wanted to cry, but I didn't, I was numb. I didn't even know what to do. So I found my husband and I barely got the words out. And then I just sat down in a, like a puddle and just started sobbing. And I was supposed to go to work an hour later and teach a class. And there was just no way. I canceled my class. Um, we ended up going to a friend's that night um, or that afternoon to go swimming. And I sat in their hammock and I just cried. I cried for two days straight. I don't even think I ate or slept or anything. And my husband, I think he really was feeling it as well, but had such a different way of processing it. I think he's much better at putting things into perspective and and thinking, well, it's a Friday afternoon. We have this information. There's nothing we can do about it right now. So let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. For me, I don't know. For me, it just, it was like it all hit me like a ton of bricks. And I started that grieving process immediately. Um, So I cried for two days. Monday morning rolled around. I called a neurologist, and um, I found one in the neighborhood. I had actually called five or six different offices because, you know, being in Chicago, we have access to all of these amazing institutions. You know, we have Children's, which, you know, Lurie's now it's called. Um, We have University of Chicago. We have all these great institutions. And I'm calling around to all the places that have been suggested to me by friends and family. And every single one tells me it's at least a six-month wait to get it. And I'm starting to get panicked because I'm thinking six months, that's like a lifetime for a little kid. And my daughter has epilepsy and I need to see somebody. I mean, I didn't understand how they could just be so laid back about it because in my eyes, this was an emergency. You know, my baby has a neurological disorder. I need to talk to somebody right now. So finally, I got in touch with one in the neighborhood, a neurologist who could see us in about three weeks. So we went in and I just sat there and I I listened to the doctor talk and all I could really gather was that 
they had no idea what was going on with my daughter. They knew that she had an abnormal EEG. They didn't see any seizures on the EEG. They just saw abnormal spike wave patterns. I had no idea what that meant. Um, when I asked them what exactly she had, they gave me like three different answers. I said, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this other thing. We have no idea, but here, we should just put her on this medication. And then they wrote me a script for an anti-seizure medication and sent me on my way. So that's how we ended up finding out that our daughter had a neurological disorder. It was four and a half years of being told by doctor after doctor that my daughter was fine, that we were just a mess and we needed to calm down. And and then finally getting this diagnosis by way of a child psychiatrist, which is the weirdest kind of backdoor way I feel to have gotten this diagnosis. But um, And thank God for the PT and OT who kind of, you know, helped validate your concerns. It's just so frustrating. Completely. Completely. And, you know, looking back on it, I can't remember if the child psychiatrist had mentioned let's do an EEG or if because the PT and OT mentioned it to me. I brought it up. And and I think it's probably the second one. And that's kind of a scary thought now that I'm really, you know, talking about it with you. But I wonder what would have happened had I not had those professionals in my life, like you said, validating my concerns and then giving me something solid to go and ask about. Uh, and, and that's something that's really been the biggest piece of this whole journey is I didn't even know what questions to ask as a parent going through all of this. I mean, I had no clue what was happening and all I could do was trust the medical professionals. And of course, um, I have a lot of trust in medical professionals who have gone you know, to medical school for years and studied all of this and pra- you know, practicing every day. So I have a great amount of respect for them. But at the same time, I do feel like we have to be active participants in our healthcare. And I didn't feel like I was being a very active participant because I just had no idea what questions needed to be asked. And um, that, looking back on that, that was maybe one of the hardest parts of it all was that I felt powerless. I felt like I was in the dark and I really didn't feel like I had anyone there saying, well, you might want to ask about this or how about that or have they considered this? You know, I didn't have any of that. So um, that's a big big piece that, you know, I always look back and I wonder if I just had had one or two people in my life who um, could have helped me advocate, you know, a little bit stronger or even given me the questions to ask, would we have gotten the diagnosis sooner? I don't know. I mean, I try not to second guess. I try not to look back and only look forward. But that is certainly frustrating to me that it took that long, even though I kept saying, you know, I'm her mom and I'm telling you something seems off. I've said it on this podcast before, and I will say it again. Finding a medical provider that you trust is worth its weight in gold. Someone who will listen to your concerns and worries and will take you seriously when you say something is wrong. Child Life Specialists will tell you that we have the honor and flexibility to look beyond the medical diagnosis. Whether a child has strep throat or a seizure disorder, each complaint and concern is valid and has a right to be considered. Looking back on a lot of those doctors, I don't, I'm not really upset with them. I do feel like they really believed what they were telling me. You know, they really, um, they really thought they didn't want to panic a mom. You know, they really thought that what was going on fell into the range of normal. And, you know, I'm frustrated about it in some ways, but at the same time, you know, my daughter wasn't having the typical types of seizures. So for people who don't 
know much about epilepsy or, or know what seizures are. It's basically an electrical storm that goes on in the brain. And what I didn't know prior to my daughter's diagnosis is that epilepsy is not just grand mal seizures. They call them tonic-clonic seizures now, but um, most people think of them as grand mal seizures where someone usually falls down and then their body gets really stiff and shakes. That's only one type of seizure. There are hundreds of different types of seizures. Some of them, a person looks like they're completely awake and conscious, and maybe they'll just be smacking their lips or mumbling to themselves or just staring off into space. I mean, there's just so many different kinds of seizures. My daughter's seizures happen at night, um, usually at night. She didn't really like to nap either. And um, so I think they also happen during the day, you know, during any time she got into a sleep cycle that um, would trigger them. So, and we still don't know what it is that triggers them, what part of the sleep cycle. We have no idea. But my daughter's happen at night. Next, Trisha explains to us what one of Cora's seizures looked like shortly after she was diagnosed. That morning, they had brought us into the children's hospital to do an MRI. And to do the MRI, they had to sedate Cora. So um, that was fine, and everything went great during the procedure. They did the MRI. But on the way home, when Cora was kind of really coming out of the sedation, she just didn't seem herself. And she was doing a lot of mumbling, and she was seeming a little confused. And again, she's, you know, only about four and a half years old. So it was kind of hard to tell if she was just being silly or what was going on. And so for the rest of the day, she was just a little stumbly and just a little groggy. And I thought it was all very normal having just been under some anesthesia. And we got to about one in the morning where Cora just would not go to sleep. And this was not atypical. She really struggled to fall asleep at night. So I wasn't too concerned I gave her a bath, still couldn't get her to calm down. So it was about 12.45, 1 in the morning, and all of a sudden Cora had, um, you know, a, a tonic-clonic, the type of seizure that people think of when they think of seizures. And um, it lasted a good long while, a couple of minutes long, and Cora stopped breathing during it for, I don't even know, I mean, it felt like a lifetime. I don't, it probably wasn't very long that she stopped, but it was long enough for her lips to start to look a little, you know, not red anymore, like a little purple, a little blue eventually. Um, that was the scariest moment of my life. I um, called 911. Cora was transported via ambulance to the local hospital. And we were there for a good week or a week and a half. And um, I mean, that was a really scary time. And actually, when we got to the hospital, they asked me who our doctor was. And I had no idea how to answer that because I was not happy with the first neurologist we had seen because we got no answers. I wasn't thrilled with all the pediatricians and, and doctors who had blown us off and told us everything had been fine. Um, so I named this doctor that I had thought about going to see in the neighborhood that everyone raved about, and I put his name on the paperwork. And at 4 in the morning, he actually walked into that ER. He got up when he got that call and came in to meet his new little four-and-a-half-year-old patient and um, met with my husband because I, I had actually fallen asleep with my daughter at that point. And he met with my husband, and it was so amazing to have this, um, he was a family doctor, he was a little bit older than my husband and me, and he just felt like a father figure. He was amazing. He came in, he met my daughter, and he looked at us and he promised that he would not let us leave the hospital until we knew our daughter was safe. And that was what I needed to hear. I had zero doctors up until this point tell me that they were going to do whatever they could do to make sure my daughter was safe. And that you know, they were going to do whatever they could to get to the bottom of what was going on with her. I felt like I finally found a provider who listened, 
who listened and who connected and who, you know, whether or not he actually did, appeared to care about my daughter, probably not as much as I will, right, because I'm her mom, but as close to the amount that I care about my daughter as any doctor could. Oh, I mean, getting out of bed at 3 a.m. to come meet a new patient is yeah. pretty incredible. <laughs> it, it was it was completely incredible. And then I thought, well, we'll see. You know, at this point, I'm a little jaded by the professionals I've met. So I thought, we'll see how it goes, right? But he came back and he saw us every day in the hospital. He wouldn't let us go home until Cora was given an apnea monitor because he was concerned about the fact that Cora had stopped breathing. He made sure that every test that needed to be run was run and that we had a game plan. And even if we didn't have all the answers we wanted, we at least had a plan for what came next. So that was amazing. And then, um, you know, we went home, we had medications, we had an apnea monitor. That thing used to go off more than 20 times a night. Talk about terrifying. Like to know that that's how many times a night my daughter was stopping her, her breath, even for a moment. It was a really scary time, that first six months to a year. I think at about nine, ten months, we were able to go off the apnea monitor, which was great. Then we were just, you know, using the medication to stop the seizures. We had no idea when she was really seizing. Back to talking about what I didn't know before, you know, I got this epilepsy diagnosis for my daughter. I had no idea that there were such a thing as nocturnal seizures. I had no idea that people could have them while they were sleeping. Um, I had no idea that there was something called SUDEP, which is sudden unexplained death and epilepsy. I had no idea that that was a thing. Um, and that was terrifying. To provide a bit more information about SUDEP, according to epilepsy.com, it is an acronym for sudden unexpected death and epilepsy. It is more common in adults than in children, and people with poorly controlled epilepsy are at greater risk. If you would like more information about this condition, please talk with your doctor. Trisha also explains that epilepsy is more common than people may realize, and she is right. Again, according to the Epilepsy Foundation and epilepsy.com, the average incidence of epilepsy each year in the U.S. is estimated at 150,000 or 48 for every 100,000 people. Epilepsy really can affect every part of someone's life, whether they're a child or an adult. Um, for my daughter, it also, um, we found out that she has um, most likely ADHD. She has a lot of, we had a neuropsych exam done and she has a lot of the symptoms of ADHD. They're not really ready to go there and, and call it that. Um, but that kind of goes hand in hand, I think, with her neurological things going on. Um, and then she has been diagnosed with generalized anxiety. And, you know, who knows what causes what or what's genetic and, and what causes epilepsy if it was environmental or genetic, but I do know that when I don't get enough sleep, I have a hard time. So to know that my daughter has spent this many years of her life having interrupted sleep cycles, like I can't even blame the kid if she feels anxious, you know, every day because I can only imagine how I would feel, you know, if I never really got a, a good night's sleep. So, um, so you know, it's not just the, the seizures that goes into the epilepsy diagnosis. It's really um, a multifaceted disorder. What are some of the hardest parts about dealing with a child who has epilepsy? Oh, goodness. Um, the unknowns, I think, are the hardest parts about having a child with epilepsy. Um, for as much as we know about the brain, there's still so much that doctors don't know. And like I said, there's just so many different types of seizures. Um, there's just uh, so many different types of medication. And 
nobody really knows which one is going to be right for their child, which one's going to make things worse. Um, that's probably the hardest part. And, and, and what goes hand in hand with that, it's equally as difficult is um, my daughter's moods and her demeanor, you know, her, her affect, it really gets affected by the neurological disorder. So it is tricky as a mom, and my husband would probably echo this, that um, when you have a child who has such extreme ups and downs in their moods, uh, it's, it's really difficult to deal with. But then, you know, always having to remember, but she has this neurological disorder. So trying not to get too, you know, like making her responsible for herself and her actions, but not being too hard on her and knowing that some part of it is the neurological disorder. So that's really tricky, trying to sort that out. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and say that I think my daughter is manipulative, but, you know, she's 13. So I think there are times where I question and go, is she just playing me? You know, is this is this is her being sassy or, you know, should I give her a little wiggle room on this one? So that's really tricky. You know, it's, it's difficult enough to have children in every different developmental stage. Um, you know, when you add in that extra layer, trying to sort through what's developmentally appropriate for her age and what's the epilepsy affecting things. It's just sometimes I just have absolutely no idea. Trisha feels that the Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Chicago has been a lifeline for both herself and Cora. The foundation connects families with epilepsy with one another and holds camps for children where Cora was able to meet with other kids with her diagnosis. If you would like to get connected to your local chapter within the Epilepsy Foundation, I will link to all the chapters on the show notes page. This is how Trisha describes the organization. While you have something that isn't typical, looking and seeing somebody else who's going through something similar, it just makes, it makes her feel a lot more normal, you know, and it makes me feel like there's hope because I see other people coping and getting through it and, you know, having hard times, but also seeing their successes and their triumphs. It's been a great organization. What's helping you cope now in your present life day to day? You've got your care plan. You have your support network. What, what helps you? Um, oh goodness. I don't, uh, focus on self-care as much as I should. So that I will admit. Um, I think for me, you know, I mentioned that I cried for probably two straight days. And then I feel like what I did at that point was I stood up and I looked at my husband and I said, okay, well now we just have to be advocates for our daughter. We have to learn everything we possibly can learn and we have to be her voice until she can be her own voice. And I think that was my way of coping. Um, so I've become a pretty fierce advocate and activist for um, programs and for healthcare options and and um, all sorts of different issues surrounding epilepsy. Um, Cora has also followed in, I guess, my footsteps in that way, and um, she now goes down to Springfield with me and does, you know, the lobby days, Springfield in our capital. Um, and talks to legislators. Um, I have some great photos of Cora sitting with senators telling them that they need to pass a budget right now because her epilepsy foundation needs to be funded. Um, So I think for Cora and for me, that has really helped us feel like we had some sort of power in this situation. You know, for the lack of answers and the lack of control that we really have in a lot of ways, this is something that we can do and have control over is getting involved and in, in helping others have a voice, you know, with this, with this neurological disorder. So that's helped. Um, I also, when it gets really rough, you know, I sit down and I talk to a talk therapist and um, 
get reminded of all those things that I know I should be doing, you know, taking care of myself and remembering to meditate and all of that. Um, But really, I think probably talking to other parents and doing the uh, events with the Epilepsy Foundation is probably the way that I cope the most. Because like I said, it's just a nice way to know that you're not alone. You know, there's other families that are thriving, uh, even though they have this epilepsy diagnosis. What would you tell a parent, um, say you meet them on their first day at the Epilepsy Foundation? What What would you tell them? Uh, um, as you're asking that question, I, I got the tears in my eyes again. Um, I would tell them that it's going to get better and that they're not alone and that um, there are going to be rough days rough weeks, you know, months, even years at some point, but that epilepsy is just one part of their child's story and that, um, you know, there's just so much out there to even just be, you know, my daughter got diagnosed in 2008 and here we are in 2017 and I look back and think they know, you know, they knew so, so much back then, but yet so little they know so much more today than they did back then. And just that short amount of time, um, they're making breakthroughs constantly on medications. You know, medications they suggested to us nine years ago, they're not even suggesting any longer. So to not give up hope, um, medical marijuana is now something that's being heavily advocated for and really helping a lot of kids and a lot of families. Um, So I would tell them to just reach out, Find their local chapter if they have one near them. Um, Find, you know, if they don't have that, find any group, create one on Facebook, whatever they need to do to reach out to other families because this is something that is with a lot of people for life. I mean, not everyone. Some people outgrow it, but it's with most people for life. But it doesn't have to be something that um, defines their life in a negative way. So, to you know, to try to find other people going through it and see that other people are living lives that are full and, um, you know, that they, that they're still doing really, really well. If you could describe uh, what Cora has taught you kind of throughout this experience and this journey, what would it be? Hmm. You're just going to try to make me cry tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I promise I'm not. (laughs) I'm crying if that helps. (laughs) Um, my daughter has taught me, that oh gosh there's so much she's taught me she's taught me that even in the face of insurmountable obstacles um of having you know this great amount of anxiety that she has and she always talks about it she says anxiety is the the, the big liar you know it's it's always telling her things that that aren't really true you know um that even in the face of the anxiety and the lack of sleep and um all of the things that have come along with her epilepsy diagnosis that, that she still perseveres. She still, you know, she, she gets so frustrated and she, she really struggles with so much, but she does it with such grace and the amount of strength and resiliency she has is just, um, it's incredible, you know, and I strive every day to try to be the best mom that I can for her. I often probably every day feel like I'm failing her in so many different ways. I think any parent feels that way, you know, no matter if their child has a diagnosis of something or not. Um, But Cora always has this way about her where she always makes me feel like 
I'm doing a good job, you know, that she recognizes that, that we're here for her and that we all want the best for her and that she even will admit, she's like, you know, I'm not easy to deal with when I'm having all these issues, but like, mom, you guys are here. And it's just wild that she's always worried about making sure that we get validated and that we feel okay when she's going through all these things. So I think for the most part, she's just really taught me how strong a person can be and how a diagnosis doesn't have to end up defining them. You know, it's weird. I feel like her diagnosis almost is a blessing in a lot of ways because a lot of who she is centers around her advocacy that she does, not just for the Epilepsy Foundation, but for so many causes. And I feel like her diagnosis helped her find that strength deep down inside of her that she didn't even know she had and to find her voice. So, you know, that's probably one of the biggest things she's taught me too is, is that my voice is powerful and that I shouldn't be ashamed and afraid to use it. Because when I watch my 13-year-old daughter, who's been through everything she's been through, still standing strong and tall, not afraid to talk to these legislators and say, hey, listen, get your act together. You know, she's 13 and struggling with all of these things, and she's able to do this. I, you know, take such, I don't know, I, I look at her and it's, I can't help but kind of like take some of that strength and, and, and use it for myself as well. You know, it just, she exudes it. And um, I, I couldn't, couldn't be more proud of my daughter, really. She's, she's an amazing soul. And, um, you know, I think that's also just the message that I want to get across to parents is don't feel like a diagnosis like epilepsy is, is the end of the story. It really is just the beginning. You know, they, I think they'll be amazed at what their little one ends up doing in life. If you are tearing up right now, I am right there with you. Cora is an incredible human, and we can all learn from her strength and determination. And it goes without saying that she has one amazing mother. Trisha suggests looking up the closest chapter of the Epilepsy Foundation in your area. And she also suggests dannydid.com, a foundation that raises funds and awareness for epilepsy. If you are specifically in Chicago, Trisha recommends Equipped for Equality, which are free of charge attorney services to help get children the special education services if it's necessary for them. And she also recommends Access Living, which is also out of Chicago, and it provides tools, advocacy, and support to people with disabilities. Trisha says that she is a part of secret and or private Facebook groups that have been helpful for connecting with other parents. And she also recommends starting your own if you can't find one that fits your exact needs. If you'd like to connect with Trisha, you can do so via her email, which is gentlebeginning at gmail.com, or you can connect with her on Twitter or Facebook. I will link to all of her accounts on our show notes, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. A big thank you goes to Trisha and Cora for sharing their story. And please share this podcast if you think it may be helpful for someone to hear it. As always, I hope you are subscribed so you can get our latest episode you can't miss next week. Here's a quick preview. And, you know, I was a math major in college. To see that there, you know, are eight cases in medical history of a condition, I mean, it was like, no way my son has this. You know, there's, it's it's statistically just impossible that my child could be the ninth person in the history of, you know, medicine in the world, documented medicine in the world, um, to have this condition. you know, everyone's heard of, 
a handful of, you know, genetic conditions, you know, Down syndrome, for example. Um, but, I, you know, I'd never thought, man, what if my baby has mandibuloacral dysplasia type B? That was Mandy, and you will get to hear more about her son, Nolan, next week in part one of her two-part journey. As you heard her say, her son has an incredibly rare genetic condition, and she has so much important information to share, so we will do her story over two weeks. Make sure you tune in next week.